In order to be successful in your career, you have to know when to take risks and travel down uncertain paths with only your instincts to guide you. But how do you decide when it's time to try something new or pivot? In our conversation with Ben Royce of Google, he explains the story of his career through key decisions made, throwing caution to the wind. I'm a relatively analytical person, uh, so I, these big decisions in my life, I had to have some sort of analytical strategy, right? Like you know, these are often quite emotional decisions, right? They're at least a lot emotionally driven. So I had to find a way to quantify that. Learn how Ben made important career choices by taking educated risks and creating his own unique career path by trusting his instincts along the way. This has influenced the way he's found mentorship, job searched, and networked. All that on this episode of Rising to the Top. Welcome to Rising to the Top, Lessons in Leadership, brought to you by Columbia University's Career Design Lab. In this podcast, we interview senior industry leaders who share the secrets of their success and reveal pivotal moments that impacted their career paths. Hello and welcome. I'm Paul Maniacci, Assistant Director of Industry Relations at the Career Design Lab. Today's guest is Ben Royce, a business development professional for Google's Cloud AI Services. There he prototypes new products using machine learning and data science techniques to find insights about how users consume and interpret advertising. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben. Thanks for having me. So how does someone who grew up in farm country in Wisconsin end up living in London? New York City and Los Angeles, working in the tech industry. Was this an intentional career journey you decided to embark on? Um, a little bit was intentional. A lot of it was analysis. I'll put it like that. Um, basically, I knew that I liked playing with technology when I saw the first computers. You know, I thought they were cool. I liked playing video games, stuff like that. Like every uh, like every boy in the eighties. <laughs> um, but I really did enjoy technology, and I had a hunch that you know, farm country uh, in the upper Midwest was probably not the hub for that. Um, but, and I kind of, it wasn't even that specific. It was much wider. I thought there has to be the, the I don't understand how big the world is around me. And I would you know, look at the globe and be like, that's my little patch. And then I'd look like, you know, two inches to the left and the globe and be like, never been to that patch. And then you spin the globe and you realize how big it is. And, and I kind of had a funny feeling that I was like that when it came to the world around me. So I wanted to play with technology, um, which got me uh, into, you know, university. And I had been told that there was a global workforce out there that I was competing against. You're not competing against, you know, the guy down the street. You're not competing against the guy in the state next to you. You're competing on a global level. Right. And I said, OK, well, if I can't get paid a lot. <laughs> I might as well get experience that lets me get paid more later. And so I searched around and tried to find um, any way that I could work in an English speaking country outside of the United States. So I could say, at least I had somewhat global experience. So I did that and I found a work visa for two years in London. I worked for a startup um, that was an e-commerce startup. And I was really doing everything from building the website to managing inventory to literally slapping the labels on the, on the, on the boxes. Um, and I worked there for just short of two years, uh, until my visa ran out and then, um, kind of was like, okay, I've, you know, ticked this artificial box called global experience, right? Which was better than I would argue like global experience is pretty rare, uh, for, for new grads at the time. Um, so then I was reading like, where should you go? I was very open-minded. I was like, you know, I'll go anywhere as long as they don't hate me, <laughs> you know? Um, and 
I was looking at two jobs. One was in New York City and one was in Denton, Texas. And I had to make a decision in my life. I actually see that as one of the big forks in my life uh, was making the decision between about the same pay, by the way. The pay was very comparable between Denton, Texas, which is about 45 minutes outside of Dallas uh, and New York City. And let's be clear, my life was going to be much more comfortable in Denton than it was going to be in New, in New York. Um, and I remember a guy, he kind of told me, he said, you know, the guy in Texas, he said, you know, you can get a four bedroom house in a, in a, in a, in a Cadillac out here if you want. And I remember thinking, wow. And then I paused and realized it's me and my cat. What do I need a four bedroom house for? <laughs> so I went and got a one bedroom apartment in New York city and took the New York city job. And in general, um, and no offense to Denton, of course, but in, in general, I'm actually glad I did because I had read that if you go to a big city and work, especially in the knowledge industry, like, you know, anything that's like knowledge uh, heavy, you're going to realize how bad you are because you're competing against people who are competing all the time, right? The competition is higher and that makes you better. And I thought that was a good thing. So I was willing to put up with the quality of life downgrade in order to compete and get better. And I'm not going to lie. I was blown away by how competitive the New Yorkers could be, uh, New York transplants as well. You know, they go there for a reason. Um, and, uh, that's, that's where I got started in, um, moving from e-commerce to advertising. And then I realized I probably should go to grad school because I realized that all these people that were, you know, beating me or above me all had grad degrees in New York. So I went to grad school at Columbia. And what was it that you found at, at Columbia at the school of professional studies that would eventually lead you to Google? What did you learn there? What was that experience like? I know that you're, you're now a professor at the school of professional studies as well. So this was another big kind of decision in my life, which was, you know, so you're going to go to grad school. Great. Like, what are you going to do in grad school? Because actually the topic, the program is really important too, depending on your career, right? Um, one of the things that I, I looked at business school, but I felt like I had some pretty good business experience. I, I looked at uh, analytical programs and in, in the School of Engineering, and I was like, you know, my hard skills are pretty good. I was pretty good at um, doing R and Python, and, and, I did, and that just through practice, you know, and, and self-taught, right? Um, and I figured like that probably wasn't the long, the long play. The long play was strategic thinking. And that's what got me into the information and knowledge strategy program. Because before I worked at Google, I was looking at firms like Google and Google itself. And they fundamentally saw the world differently, which leads to different strategies. Um, you know, they make mistakes just like everyone else, but um, they really did see the world differently. I wanted to learn how to think in multiple modes in order to develop the best strategy, not just be an expert in one strategy. Because I felt like I had mastered the cold start optimization, start a small e-commerce business, grow it through search technology, email, uh, you know, growing it and making sure that, you know, pricing structures. I had gotten really good at that. You could pretty much put me in any product area and I could do that relatively effectively. I couldn't tell you how to get up against Amazon. Like I... The likelihood that a small e-commerce startup was going to beat them sustainably for a long period of time was low. And I had to figure out how do these people think? How come, how do they, how is their strategy so effective? Because I don't have that scale, but I, I have to know the strategy in order to, to work with it. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to learn how to think, not what to think, mostly because I'm a disagreeable person, but, um, but uh, that was the skill that I was missing. And the cool thing about Columbia and the reason I chose Columbia was because New York City is the center of commerce in in America. Um, it is, you know, it's Wall, Wall Street is there and, and the stock exchange is there for a reason. It is the center of business and arguably globally. Um, two was 
you don't go to grad school to learn a hard skill. And I actually have arguments with people about this all the time. You go to grad school to get information that's not readily available on the internet already, right? Understanding how to think strategically and in more than one way strategically. That was really what I looked for uh, in a grad school program. And that's that's what I found at the Information Knowledge Strategy Program. Um, finished that. And then um, uh, not, not more than a few months later, there was a role that was posted at uh, Google that was literally the thing that I had been obsessed on. That was data science for advertising uh, and, you know, kind of general consumer behavior through advertising. Uh, so that's how I ended up at Google. And um, two things that are interesting that you said there. Uh, how did you make these decisions? I know in a, in a prior conversation, you talked about how you go through your decision process and weigh the, the pros and the cons. I'm a relatively analytical person. Uh, so I, these big decisions in my life, I had to have some sort of analytical strategy, right? Like you know, these are often quite emotional decisions, right? They're at least a lot emotionally driven. So I had to find a way to quantify that. Uh, so I came up with this kind of, loose methodology that I've used and, and my family has used them too now for, for big decisions. And you, if you have two options or you can have multiple options, that's fine. Three, four, uh, you basically put them on a two by two grid and you list them out from left to right, the different options. So the top left would be option a pros. And it's like a pro con list, which is, you know, everyone kind of knows the trick here is to give a score to each one of the pros and each one of the cons, right? A positive score from one to 10. Right. So um, I did this when I chose between, you know, Texas and New York. I did this when I you know, chose between staying in a job and taking a new job. Um, I, you know, there was a, any major decision you, have, you can pretty much use this methodology and you basically do the pro con list for each one and they can they can overlap. You can say, hey, here's the pro and the opposite con is this. That's fine. And if they have the same score, then they kind of zero each other out. Right. Um, but you'll find that often uh, it won't. So. Program lists, everyone knows, if you give us the scores, that's clever, I think. What really makes it effective is you do it multiple times. So you do it, right, you know, during the morning, you do it maybe the next day at night, maybe you do it if you're worried about this decision, if it's keeping you awake at night, you know, just jump up, go through the list, you'll feel a little better because you kind of thought about it enough and go back to sleep. Do it at different times during the day and look at how the scores, the net scores vary. And that's where you start to see if the scores are very, very similar between all these different attempts, then you, you pretty much got your baseline. You're going to know which one you're going to do. Right. Um, but if they're all over the place, if one time they're net positive, one time they're net negative, and then you, you don't have enough pros and cons is really what it means. So that's a very nerdy way of making big decisions in my life. But in general, what's kind of fun is that if I am unhappy with my decision, I can go back, I can look at that sheet of paper. I take photos of them too. And I can look at that sheet of paper and be like, what did you get wrong? What, why did you think that was so going to be so positive when it was negative? Or why did you think that was so negative when it was positive? And that's a, that's a, that's really good for learning how to learn to make better decisions in the future. Right. And that's really what you want. You're, you know, your first one, you're going to be okay. Your, but your 10th one, you're going to be much better. And so that, that you know, optimization again, uh, that's, that's how I make decisions. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned that I believe when you were working at the e-commerce company, you just couldn't compete with Amazon. Mm -hmm. how, how do you know like when the point to pull the plug is? Is it just you saw like Amazon in the shadows and, yeah. and it's coming towards you and you're just like, you know, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to, as a small business, compete with this behemoth. Were there certain signs? Was it like month to month? Well, the cool thing about the internet is it's very quantifiable, right? So we kind of, one, if you see declining sales, that's one thing, right? Um, on the other side uh, is that we started, what we would do is we would look at search volumes like Google Trends data. 
and we would take the products that we were selling and we would look at them and say, if our sales are declining or our you know, views on our website are declining, but more and more people are searching for this thing, something's systemically wrong, right? Like, you know, we could spend more on advertising, sure, but that, that's going to eat into our margins. So you kind of learn where that sweet spot is. The only way to beat them, in my experience, was to find the newest products before they do. You know, sell them until they figure out that they're popular, and then you got to you got to have the next new one, right? And this is this is what, like, for example, American manufacturing has been doing with Chinese manufacturing, right? Like, they can't compete necessarily on price because of labor price differences, but they can be innovative and faster, right? And that's that's hard, and you know, our in a global world, maybe it should be, <laughs> right? Like some people think that way. So yeah, we kind of saw that between our sales were kind of not declining, but they definitely weren't growing. But we knew the category was growing much faster. And it was pretty easy because we just count the number of reviews that they would have on Amazon. And we would knew like, oh, about 1% of people review. Oh, my, they're selling four times as much as us now. You know, so then you have your market share number, right? So it was a, it was a thing that I would track on a, on a spreadsheet and just like, okay, like we have, we, I can tell you literally when we're going to have zero uh, growth. And it'll be like, oh, it's going to happen in eight months. Is that Okay, good to know. You know, I, do we have eight months to change this? Maybe. So yeah, that's where you kind of use numbers and try and be. The the trick is is to be very analytically uh, savvy, but have a strategic decision making mindset. And putting those two together, most I found, and I had to learn both. I'll admit, right? <laughs> but I've noticed that sometimes people obsess over one and almost at the detriment to the other. Um, and this is like what I talk about between data scientists and business executives. It's exactly that split, right? Like the data scientists are highly analytical. The, the business executives are very strategic decision makers and the bridge is very, very, you know, loose at best. Right. So if you can build a strong bridge between those two skills, it's, um, and it's a lifelong skill. It's great. You know, very interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to pivot a little bit. I want to, to talk to you about mentorship in your career and, how you went out and sought it because um, I understand that it wasn't something that that came to you. You had to go and, and reach reach for it, and then also your just your thoughts on mentorship as a as someone who's been working for some time. I probably would have made better decisions if I just had someone been to refocus me or just be like, hey, consider this, you know. Uh, and I think I think a lot of people, especially under like thirty five, get really bad advice. That's <laughs> what I think because. The people, they're often seeking advice from their parents and the economy that their parents grew up in is literally not even reminiscent of, of this economy, right? Um, like if they say, hey, go look in the paper and see if they, and call them and ask them if they're hiring. That d- don't. Like this is weird, you know, and it doesn't work, let's be honest. Um, so I've made, a pur- made it my purpose to sort of not solicit people who want to be mentored, but when people seem to be floundering or they seem to be, you can often see it when they kind of vent a little bit, you're like, okay, you, you know, you need someone to kind of level set a little bit or just give you the contrarian opinion. Yeah. So what type of advice would you give to, to students or alumni who might be listening to this, who want to figure out, you know, best practices for networking, for, for being successful in their, in their job search? Because you have a really interesting take on this, and it's not the traditional view, I don't think. This is something I tell people, is that every job that you read and go, oh, I'm almost qualified, you just sunk your chance of getting the job because you won't apply. So you should apply. If you, I, my, my rule is if you meet 50% of the requirements, apply. So my suggestion is apply to more jobs, one, 10 times more than you think, two, 
make that make that easier by meeting 60% of the requirements, right? That's an important distinction there. Um, and then you'll find more jobs to apply to. You'll have more interview. And then if you're really lucky, you have two different interviews and you can play them against each other in the negotiations process, right? You know, so uh, you can apply to multiple jobs. A lot of people are afraid of looking desperate. The bigger the company, the less this is true because the likelihood that it's the same person who's handling the recruiting for one job as another is the bigger the organization, the less likely that's true. So you can't look desperate because no one's noticed, right? So you might as well go for gold and apply as much as you can. The world of technology changes so rapidly that um, we can't just say, hey, we're, we take people from this program from this school and, and they're always good. And the, the last thing that I wanted to ask you was through your career, as your career has advanced, have you learned certain lessons as a manager that you can share with our students and our alumni? Uh, two things. Um, one, I've met people early in their career who are very, very gung ho about wanting to manage other people. And they weren't, it was not very well veiled, but they really wanted to control people. This was ugly and terrifying to me. You know, um, it's like, I, I think someone a long time ago said, you know, anyone who wants to be president is automatically disqualified, you know, and I kind of like that, right? We should, we should draft the president, not elect them. Um, because uh, one, I think, I think for some people, managing people is, um, it fills a little bit of a, a hole in their, like in their, in their, like uh, maybe a psyche or something. And they feel more powerful because they have people under them. This is usually a bad manager. To be honest, like we know that people that think like that have bad reviews. And that's why I think all organizations should have a bottom up rating system, not a top down rating system. Right. Like you want the people who like working for that person to rise faster uh, up the organizational chain. Um, and the different. OK, so let's say you, you've you've identified yourself as someone who wants to manage people for the right reasons. There's a difference between management and leadership. What's the difference? Leaders have followers. Okay. Now ask yourself this, are you a manager or a leader? And of course everyone says I'm a leader, right? No. If you quit and went to another organization, how many of those people would quit with you? The answer is usually zero, <laughs> right? If you're lucky one, and if you're really good, two plus, right? So I think it's important to distinguish because I take it seriously. If you want to be a manager, you need to ask yourself why, and are you willing to accept the responsibility of that? And then two, can you actually become a leader? Because I know leaders that are not very high up on the chain. And I know terrible, terrible managers that are really high up in the chain, right? What, what were those right reasons that you were referring to? Do you want other people to grow around you and, and below you? Like, do you, want them, do you want them to be successful? And I've had to tell people that have worked for me, uh, you know, they get another job offer. And I have to ask myself, of course I want to retain this person, you know, uh, but if it's genuinely better for them, I have to bite the bullet. And I don't think a lot of people are willing to do that a lot of times. Right. Uh, and that's important. Uh, it's funny cause I often, there's often an informal mentorship that happens after that, you know? So I think you have to genuinely look out for your people. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ben. This has been fun to hear you, uh, talk about your career. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to rising to the top lessons in leadership. For more episodes, subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To get more information and tips on how you can advance your career, 
visit Columbia University's Career Design Lab at careerdesignlab.sps.columbia.edu.